The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, we have the privilege to worship God in many different ways on the Lord's Day. One of those is singing to Him great words like we just heard, and also praying to Him, and then also listening to God. God is a living God. He speaks. I've never heard God speak audibly from heaven, but... I've heard God speak in a real way, and if you're a believer, you have as well, and he does that primarily through his truth and the word of God, as he speaks to our hearts and the spirit of God who lives in us, so that's one of the key ways we worship God, by hearing his voice, and so I invite you now as we continue in our worship to turn to the book of Titus, as we continue to go through the book of Titus, hearing what the Apostle Paul told Titus, the pastor, because it applies to our church as well. So we're going through this book little by little, sometimes one verse at a time. And then last week we were cruising. We went 10 through 16, big chunk there, talking about the bad guys, the heretics. And so now we move on to chapter 2. So I'd invite you to look there at uh, Titus chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. And the title of today's sermon is Godly Older Men. That's looking at verses 1 and 2. And there's a transition here between chapters 1 and 2. And we see the transition with that little but important word, the conjunction there, but in the English translation. And so Paul's taking on a new topic, new point of emphasis in chapter 2. So that's where we're going to be. And chapter 2 goes together, verses 1 through 15. Pretty much about uh, the same thing. Uh, Paul laid out the importance of, boy, to have a healthy church and an obedient church and a godly and growing church you got to start with the leadership of the church that's the foundation you need quality god-ordained leadership that's true in any organization at the company that you work at or the school that you're affiliated with all kind of starts at the top the, the leadership and so god knows that he gave birth to the church and he continues to grow it and sustain it and so god knows that if you want to have a godly church you've got to start with the foundation of its leadership and that was the whole point of chapter one so paul's challenge to titus was titus you got to you know rein those churches in help restructure them a little bit get rid of the uh, disobedient leaders that aren't going to do it according to scripture and replace them with godly leaders that are qualified in light of all those qualifications we just went through and that's that's where it begins and so some of you may have been asking, wow, how is uh, chapter one of Titus apply to me? You know, the 42 qualifications for elder. Well, it totally applies to every Christian who affiliates any way with any church because you're either you're at a church with either a biblical leadership or a compromised leadership. And it, it affects you. Even if you're just the lay person or in second grade, what kind of church are you going to? God wants you in a healthy biblical church and it starts with the leadership and those who are qualified and so very very important and implications for all people so uh, chapter one was here's the qualifications for godly elders and pastors in contrast to the bad guys uh, who were false teachers and the heretics and those who usurped leadership and didn't have any right to have any leadership in the church because they were rebels teaching the wrong thing, behaving the wrong way, bad attitudes, uh, weren't compliant and submissive to the truth of the word of God. And they're stirring up trouble and calling converts to themselves instead of pointing them to the cross of Christ. That's one mark of a false teacher. Follow me instead of saying follow Jesus. 
And that's what they were doing. And then Paul concluded that whole exposure and diagnosis of false teachers in verses 10 through 16 in Titus 1 by giving their profile, saying these false teachers that are creating all these problems in your churches there on the island of Crete, they're bad news. Verse 16, they profess to know God. They are claimed to be spiritual and Christians, but rather by their deeds, they deny God. Now, the word their deeds and works are a key theme in the pastoral epistles and especially in the book of Titus, even though it's a short epistle. One thing that Paul wants to emphasize, and we're going to see it throughout the rest of this book, are godly deeds and godly works. And one of Paul's points is, if you are a Christian, then you need to live like a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, you need to think and talk like a Christian. And if you claim to be a Christian, you need to live like a Christian. Godly attitudes, godly deeds, godly works. So that's a theme all throughout. And he exposes these phonies because their deeds are not godly. They are contrary to their profession of faith. And that's why they are exposed as phonies. And so that's how he ends chapter 1, showcasing, highlighting the false ungodly lifestyle of these people who call themselves Christians but are not. Their works don't match up. And then he starts with this huge contrast. Chapter 2, verse 1, but. But. You, true, professing Christians in the churches in Crete, and you, Titus, being the godly man that you are, in contrast to these phonies we just talked about, you need to live in a godly manner. You need to have godly works. You need to live the life of a Christian as salt and light in a very sinful and dark world, especially on that island of Crete. We went through that, what Crete was like. It was a horrible place. It was worse than Corinth, probably, in a lot of ways. And think of the most worldly, secular, compromised, immoral city on planet Earth today. Take your pick. Well, Crete was a close uh, second, if not even worse than that. Like I said, that's where the history of the Philistines came from, that island. And then even in Paul's day, it was known proverbially as just a very compromised place to live. And we saw the diagnosis of that last week where Paul said in verse 12 of chapter 1 that everybody knows Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. These people are vicious. They are totally ungodly. They're the very antithesis of what a Christian is like. And so as a result, you Christians that are truly Christians need to live very differently than the culture around you. And what a practical, timely message that we need to hear, right? We live in California. We live in the Bay Area. We are surrounded, according to the statistics, by a supermajority of unbelievers who are very secular, non-religious, anti-Bible, uh, immorality. So this is a good message for us in the culture in which we live. We can't live like, Paul said, don't live like the Cretans. Live like Christians. And for us, it's don't live like the Cal- typical Californians. But live like followers of Jesus Christ, salt and light. So that's the theme. Uh, so now he's going to get real personal in chapter 2. And he takes, so he's zeroing in now on the churches and different groups in the churches, different demographics in terms of their age in the churches and saying, okay, Christians, here's how you need to live. And he does it, uh, the demographic he chooses is age by age. And go ahead and look at it. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and following, and I'll just read that. But in contrast to these phony believers that we just talked about that are full of evil deeds, you, Titus, and true Christians. But as for you, Titus, oh, and the 
the qualified elders, speak the things which are fitting for sound or healthy doctrine. And now he starts categorizing Christians based on their seasons of life. Verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Next category, older women. Likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage or urge the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then in verse 9, urge bond slaves or slaves. So those are the categories that are being addressed here. Maybe you fall into one of those categories. You are either an older man in the faith, that's verse 2, an older woman, and I know most of you won't admit it, and I won't call you one. Uh, so you've got older men, older women, and then you've got younger women in verse 4, and then you've got younger men uh, following that in verse 6, and then you've got this category, not an age, but a status of people, and that is slaves. So those are the categories that he's going to address in this chapter. And he gets very specific. He's saying if you're in this season of life or if you're in this status or category of life as a Christian, a professing Christian, then you need to live a certain way. On a regular, ongoing basis, your attitude needs to reflect this level of godliness. And he gets very specific. Young men, you need to live like this. Older men, you need to be like this and live this way. Uh, older women, you need to live this way. Younger women, you need to do this and stop doing this. And, you know, that can be rather convicting when, you know, the Word of God or a preacher or the Bible zeroes in on you very specifically and starts saying, you need to do this and you need to stop doing this. And that can make us very uncomfortable because we can start feeling guilty and we can get convicted and sometimes we don't want to hear it. And others, sometimes we will welcome that and realize, wow, I need to change. So this is getting very personal in terms of the expectations God has for all of us based on where we're at in life right now. And because it becomes very personal and can be very convicting and some people can respond the right way, listen to what Paul tells Titus at the end of this section in verse 14 and 15. Actually, at the end, just verse 15. These things speak, that's teach, and exhort, that's preaching and teaching with authority and sometimes admonition. These things speak and exhort and reprove. That's correcting believers when they're off course. So you get the positive and the negative. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. There it is. And that's the authority from God. It's a delegated authority. So Pastor Titus, speak these things Tell these people in the churches to do this and refrain from this. Do not let them disregard you. This is the truth of God. Even though it might be convicting, even though we might be exposed, it's what is best for us as children of God. And as a result, let no one disregard you. Wow. Quite a challenge. 
So I, I, all of us are going to be a cha- challenged here in these uh, imperatives and these commands of what God requires of us because we all fall short. We all walk with feet of clay. We are all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy in an ongoing manner. And he gets every category of people here. Don't live like Californians. Rather, live like this. And the first category of people that he addresses are the older men in the congregation. So let's go ahead and look at it. And like I said, the uh, title of the message today is Godly Older Men. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're godly. But in the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament, uh, even in the New Testament, if you've been walking with God for a long period of time, decades and decades, and you do enter the later seasons of life, It could very well be because you've been walking with God so long that you are an exemplary model of godliness as an older man. And that's the way it should be in the local church. I put there at the top, the Old Testament commanded younger people to honor the older generation. Leviticus 19.32. That is so important. Listening to the seasoned saints, looking up to them. They've been around the block. They have experiences that we don't and how we need. They just have this reservoir of experience and wisdom that we need to draw from and learn from. That is a tremendous gift, especially to the church, the older generation. So that's why God says we need to honor the older generation. Older saints are a gift to the church, offering wisdom, stability, deep faith to the rest of the body. Older men need to recognize their unique status and contribution to the kingdom of God in the local church. So older men today... We are specifically talking to you. So when you ask the question, how do I apply this sermon? Well, everything applies to you and you need to apply it to your life. That's how you apply it to yourself. If you're an older man, this is all directly to you. Well, what if you're an older woman? How does this apply to you? Well, if you're married to that older man, you can like elbow him in the ribs every time you need to during the sermon. Say, did you hear that, honey? That's what you need to do. No, I'm kidding. Encourage. Your man, and I have actually some more practical application at the end, but we, this is really important that the church needs to hear that the older generation is just a blessed, wonderful gift to the, the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ, designed in the wisdom of God, it's supposed to be, there's supposed to be diversity, right? Diversity of ages, diversity of experiences, diversities of giftedness, diversity of even backgrounds and ethnicity, and all that is just this beautiful mosaic and collage that God himself puts together as he supernaturally takes all these various different people and unites them into one harmonious whole called the body of Christ. It is a supernatural miracle of God that reflects the diversity of our wonderful Savior that that woman at the well called the Savior of the world. The Savior of all kinds of different people. So uh, the older generation, blessed gift to it. I was reminded recently... When somebody wants to join the church at GBF, uh, stop number one, the gatekeeper is me. they got to meet with me and we talk and I hear their testimony. That's the main thing I'm looking for is how they got saved. And that's always a blessing, hearing people's testimony. Awesome. Uh, and then I always ask, so why do you want to join GBF? Standard question. And then a, a recent unique answer I got that actually I had never remember getting before was, well, I like the diversity in GBF. Well, what do you mean? Well, just the age differences. It's awesome. You got the whole gamut. Young people, kids, teenagers, singles, marrieds, young marrieds, and then you got your seasoned saints. I just think that's a healthy balance uh, in a church in fulfilling all the imperatives of Scripture and discipleship and mentoring. And I was like, wow, that is a great answer. And that is true. God has done that 
for us here at GBF. It hasn't always been that way. When we started as a church plant with 19 people, we all looked the same. Pretty boring. And then God has just added and blessed. And that is so important to add that balance. And that's kind of a danger of some... Uh, sometimes when you have a church plant that only caters to one demographic or age, say it's just... Maybe it's just all young people. The young people have energy, but you need more than that, don't you? To add that balance. And I think that's what every church should be striving for, is that balance that only really God can do in a church. So I just thank God. That was a good reminder for me recently um, from a new person's perspective of what they saw in their diagnosis of GBF. A good balance of the diversity that we have. So let's talk to these old guys. Uh, seven points I come up with just out of verse and so let's go ahead and look at those but the question you got to ask first you know does this apply to you am i am i an old guy how do i know if i'm an old guy i do not want to insult you and it doesn't give an age i mean sometimes the bible does give an age in the old testament it gave ages for when you could be a priest or an age of when you could serve in the army or an age of when you were to be circumcised or an age of uh, when you were supposed to retire from priesthood or in the new testament you got an age of when you're qualified technically as a widow to be on the list formally so there are age is given but that that is not true it's just older men older uh or some translation el- the elderly men in the congregation i don't think is as good of a translation i think this is better older men in the congregation uh the only other time that i could see that was used in this way in the new testament was in philemon the next book over with reference to paul verse 9 where he was we think he was probably in his 60s early 60s he called himself an older man uh, and then Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, was considered an older man at the time. Uh, Josephus uses the same word for men that are about 50. And that would be consistent with uh, Proverbs in the Old Testament of what's considered an older man. So it could be if you have, if you're beginning to get gray hair maybe, or, or you do have gray hair, or if you don't have any hair, or... But in con, as it's compared with younger women... Younger women are typified as those who still have children that they're raising. So older men and women, and most commentators agreed in even the way that the Greek word is used uh, in Paul's day, they zeroed in around 50 years of age. Because theoretically, at 50 years of age, you are old enough to have raised your own children who are now bearing their own children. So that's kind of the mark there, and there's probably some give and take there. So between 45 to 55 is kind of the window. Um that's who we're talking about. So, you know, 50 on up. These are the older men that we're talking about. So let's go ahead and look at this uh, and some requirements that God expects of these older men in our congregation. Starting with verse 1 again. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And unlike these false teachers, speak healthy things, speak accurate things. The word sound in verse 2 actually is the second time Paul uses this word sound doctrine. Healthy, the word is the Greek word hygiene is where we get our word hygiene from. This Greek word, so it's healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, whole, wholesome doctrine, and it's present tense. Titus, you need to keep on teaching these things, keep on teaching biblical things, not just uh, theoretical theology, but very practical things of how people are to live the right way in a God-honoring manner, some of which I'm about to tell you, specifically starting with the older men. Keep on teaching and encouraging and mentoring and exhorting the older men in your congregation to live in a godly manner that looks like this. Here's a portrait of a godly man. 
in summary form. This is what it looks like. These are the attributes and characteristics. And he lays them out in verse 2. So here they are, older men. I think So I'm like in the window. Younger guy, older guy. So I get both barrels. <laughs> older men are to be the following. They are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. This is not an exhaustive list. But the words are very specific. And these things should characterize a godly man. So the first point there is that godly older men are to live in moderation. Live in moderation. That comes from that first word used in the New American Standard where it says older men are to be temperate. Temperate. The Greek word literally uh, refers to being free from intoxication. So that would be its literal usage. Not intoxicated to alcohol. But it was used uh, frequently in a metaphorical sense to apply to a character of a person and not with reference to alcohol. But the point being is it somebody who uh, lives in moderation or they're sober-minded. So the older men are to live, they are to be temperate in their thinking, also free from intoxication. What does alcohol do? Well, I think of Ephesians 5.18 where it contrasts alcohol. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And the Greek word for filled literally is actually controlled because that's how it's used in the Gospels. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So when you have a contrast with alcohol, one thing alcohol does is it controls you. So rather than having alcohol control you, you need to live an, a controlled life as an older godly man. You need to control everything. Control your thinking. Control your passion. So a godly older man, he has control of his life. He's in control of his life. So that's exactly what this word is getting at too. He is sober in how he lives. And by the way, this word, because there's a few other words used here, but this adjective really does emphasize how this older man lives, his actions, how he conducts himself day as opposed to his thinking. These are his actions that are being emphasized. His thinking is emphasized with a couple of other adjectives later. So he's temperate in his living. He is living under control. He has good judgment. He lives in moderation, meaning he avoids the extremes in life. He avoids uh, needless extravagance. He avoids overindulgence. He has control of his life. He's not living in the extremes, as I said. He's reserved in a, in a good way. He's restrained in a good way. Uh, his priorities are in the right order. And now that he's later in life and he's seen a lot of life, he is satisfied with fewer things and the simpler things of life, the, the really necessary things of life. So he's not distracted by superfluous, unnecessary things in life. So he just, that's how he conducts his life in a very temperate manner, in control, a life of moderation, even keel across the board and a beautiful, godly example. The contrast might be somebody who's just always living their life in a crisis, from one crisis to another. Do you know people like that? Oh, I better be careful because I might have to point to myself. But anyway, but this would be the opposite of that. And I remember three, four years ago, I had the privilege to go to North Carolina to the Billy Graham Center. And John MacArthur was doing a pastor's conference there. 
And I got to kind of shadow uh, a couple of us, John MacArthur, while he was there for three or four days. The, the thing that I was that just stood out was how totally in control of his life was. Thinking, okay, here is one of the busiest men in the world that I know, and yet he's never in a hurry. He's totally calm. Uh, he's just totally in control at ease and peace. And like, wow, how does he do that? But that would just be one example of what godly older men are to be like. They are temperate, in control, and a great example for us younger guys going from one crisis to the next. So that's point number one. Godly older men live in moderation. Let's go on to the second one there. Older men are to be temperate. And then it says dignified. ESV and New American Standard say dignified. Uh, the New King James says reverent, which is actually a good translation. So older men are to be dignified or reverent. The new, uh, the NIV says worthy of respect, which is also very legitimate of a translation. Dignified, reverent. NIV's kind of puts a different nuance on it. Because a older godly man needs to live a dignified life, a reverent life. That's how he, that's kind of his perspective on life. And then the NIV says worthy of respect. That's kind of how people perceive him. Which is true. He is dignified. He is reverent. And as a result, his testimony by others who look upon his life, they see him as a man worthy of respect. That is an honorable man. And we actually, we have men like this at GBF in our church. I thank God for that. We have godly men who are temperate. They are in control. They are reverent. They are honorable. They are men like, wow, I want to be like that. I want to model my life like that. I want to be in control like that. I want to be dignified and reverent. Like that. So the older man. So number two is godly older men maintain a sober perspective on life. A sober perspective. Uh, the Greek word has to do with uh, having a serious attitude and perspective about life. Ser- not serious, not in a, a bad way, meaning he doesn't have a sense of humor. But he's just serious about life. He knows the things that are important in life. Because sometimes when we're younger, uh, we get those mixed up. What's important and what's not important. But the older godly man who is sober in his perspective on life, he, he's got that right. He knows what is important in life. One of the translations for this word is grave. And that has to do with this serious, proper perspective of life. Dignified. So uh, some of the interpretations a seriousness of purpose uh, to have a, a reputation for good behavior someone who is honorable someone who is respectable not haughty somber not frivolous not flippant not off the cuff so there's a lot of synonyms here not trivial not superficial a person of depth Dignified. He doesn't laugh at immorality. He doesn't laugh at profanity. He's actually grieved by that. And that's actually entertainment in America is trying to get us to laugh at immorality and sin, isn't it? All the time. That's what your late night talk shows are all about. But the dignified older man of God doesn't do that because he can make a distinction between about what is dishonorable and what isn't. A dignified, respectable, serious man of God. And we need these kind of men 
in our life. So that's that second adjective. Older men are to be temperate, dignified. Let's go on to the third one there. Godly older men think with discretion. That's the third word there. Older men are to be temperate. That's how he lives his life. Dignified is kind of his perspective on life and his priorities of life. And then this third one has to do actually literally with his thinking. Older men are to be temperate, dignified. Sensible is the word. Sensible. By the way, this adjective is not unique to older men. This same attribute or adjective is required of older women in your Greek text. In verse 4, you don't see it in your English, but it is. It's the same word. So older women are supposed to be sensible. The older men are supposed to be sensible. The older women are supposed to be sensible. And then it goes down in verse 5. The younger women are supposed to be sensible. Look at that. This same word applies to all three of those categories. And guess what? The younger men ah, are also called to be sensible. Same word. And then it goes on. The slaves in verse 12 are supposed to be sensible. This adjective applies to every Christian. And it needs to be a priority. And it has to do with our thinking and how we act on our thinking. We need to control our thinking. Our, our thinking needs to be controlled by what? By truth. Our thinking needs to be controlled and dictated by the Word of God. You are what you think, says the book of Proverbs. That's just a basic reality of the Christian life. Reigning in our thinking. Controlling our thinking. Feeding our thinking with truth. Having it dictated and managed by the truth of the Bible and the Word of God. Controlling our thoughts. So, sensible means sound-minded, controlling your thinking, sober-minded, level-headed, reasonable in your thinking, self-controlled in your thinking, not thinking emotionally, not getting caught away with the circumstances, not being blinded by emotion, thinking on truth, acting on truth. This is a challenge for everybody. That's why it's a command for every Christian. We have got to reign in our thought life. Every Christian needs to control their thought life. Just a reminder, go to Philippians. You go back, uh, this is Titus, so flip backwards in your Bible and go to Philippians chapter 4. Being that this adjective, I mean, Paul could have chosen a lot of adjectives for every category and age group of people, but he was selective because it was like, okay, here are the priorities. There's a lot of things you need to keep in mind, but here are the priorities. And one of the priorities for everybody is that they need to be sensible in their thinking. Control your thinking, Christian. This is all over the New Testament. Jesus, this was basic to Jesus' teaching. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your mind, with your thinking. Love the Lord your God with your mind and how you think. Paul says the same thing. Philippians 4, uh, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. And, uh, literally, quit having anxiety. Quit being overwhelmed by fear worry the future stop it knock it up. that's literally what this says in the greek text it is a command or an admonition to stop it stop what is already in progress quit doing this quit being anxious quit worrying quit you know what that means quit thinking the wrong way this is all about control of the mind that's what this whole passage is about if you have a problem with anxiety and worrying and thinking the wrong you have a problem with controlling your mind we all do so this is the solution. So stop worrying about everything, but rather 
control your mind, have a prayerful mindset in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. This is all a lesson and a command in how we conduct our thinking. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your problem. Get your eyes on God. Get your eyes on other people. Get your eyes on the needs of other people. Get your eyes on your prayer life. Boy, that will snuff out anxiety in a hurry. Boy, you do that and you commit it all to prayer. Verse 7, here's the promise, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. A supernatural peace is going to guard your heart. That's your emotions and your mind. That's your thought life. That's where anxiety comes from. Wrong emotions, wrong thought. Do this and God is going to get rid of that and give you a supernatural peace, guarding your thought life and your emotional life by controlling your thoughts. And it gets even more specific. Verse 8, finally, brethren, in light of this truth, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there is anything excellent or anything worthy of praise, think on these things, present tense. Continue to think on these things and only these things. Dwell on these things. Meditate, ruminate continually, nonstop on these things. That's how you control your thought life. That's how you get rid of anxiety. And the first attribute there in verse 8 is think on the things that are true. It's amazing how easy it is for us as finite fallen sinners to meditate, think upon and get preoccupied with things that are not true. Things that are rumors, lies, unreality, future events that probably will never happen that we are fearful of. We all do it and it creates anxiety. So here is the biblical solution. And so and this happens, you know, we're confronted with this in every day of our life. Every day. And that's why I think it's such a priority for Paul. He's a OK, what do, does every age demographic need to hear in the church? Well, they all need to be reminded about how to properly control their thought life. And that's this word being sensible that older men are called to do. So let's go back to Titus chapter uh, two, looking at these characteristics of a godly older man the godly older man lives in moderation he maintains a sober perspective on life and number three the godly older man he thinks with discretion he has control of his thought life very very important Uh, and then he goes on with a triad of characteristics that also need to be a part of a man older man of god's routine of life and it's the end of verse two Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. There's that word sound again that he uses five times in this book. Sound, healthy, whole. It needs to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in perseverance. Seasoned, mature in these three areas. So that number four would be uh, godly older men trust God instinctively. That's sound in faith solid in his faith faith is just simply believing in god at his word taking god at his word that's what faith biblical faith is taking god at his word you're willing to uh, lean back without looking and you believe god is going to catch you that's just faith and that's how christians are called to live a life of faith we walk by faith not by sight and older men of god this trusting god and believing him instinctively should be characteristic of older godly men especially if they've been walking with God for decades and decades. They know Him better than everybody else in the congregation. They've been through it all. They've seen it all. They've seen the trials. They've seen the circumstances that beset us in life, whether in your own personal life, your own personal family, or close friends. And there's much you've been exposed to that we haven't. And through it all, if you're a Christian, you know what? God is faithful every single time. And at some point in an older godly man's life, it is not a surprise to him. 
It's like, you know what? God, so they're calm. They are at peace because they have this amazing, matured, seasoned, tried and tested faith in God that the rest of us only aspire to. It's a beautiful attribute. I, I was reminded of, go to 1 John chapter 2. We're in a similar way, but a little different slant. John hints at this when he's talking about different demographics of Christians by virtue of their age. And in 1 John chapter 2, John makes the distinction between older men who've known God a long time, they've walked with God a long time, and then younger men who have walked with God not as long, but they got a little bit of a relationship with God under their belt. And they're growing. They're getting excited about certain doctrines that they're discovering. And, and then the last category is new believers. Babies in the faith. I think about when I became a Christian in college as a baby. Totally different. I was excited every day. Just thankful to be saved. Uh, didn't know a whole lot. Was willing to talk to anybody about Jesus. Didn't care what people thought. I used to wear this shirt that said, I'm a Jesus man. And I wore it in college and I'd walk down the streets of Santa Barbara. I didn't care if people made fun of me or whatever. I don't know if I'd wear that shirt today because I'm a sissy. But anyway, as a new Christian, I didn't care what people thought. So that's those are the three categories that John acknowledges. So look at these. They're very interesting. Every single one of us falls into one of these three categories, by the way. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you little children. So these are new believers. Because your sins have been forgiven. That's all you know. Man, I am free and liberated and free in Christ. That's how I was. God, why did it take 19 years to save me? Because I was hard-hearted and running away from Him. It was my fault. I wish I got saved earlier. All I knew is I was forgiven. Man, basking in that great reality of the forgiveness of God and the gift of salvation. But then there's the other end of the spectrum, verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers. These are people who have known God for a long time. They've been walking with God for decades, for genera- a generation. What are they like? I am writing to you, Father, you older godly men. This would also apply to the older godly women. Because you know Him. You See, that's the quality. Of their, they know God. They know God like no other. They know God now in a way they didn't when they were younger. So it's the depth and the breadth of their personal intimate relationship with God that just continues to grow and grow and grow as the decades go by. You older men of God, I'm writing to you because you know Him, get this, who has been from the beginning. From the beginning is a very specific phrase, meaning this person has been a Christian for a very long time. Because He uses it two times to describe fathers. And then the last category are kind of the in-betweeners. We're not new Christians. We're not, we haven't been walking with God for decades and decades and decades and we're not the older men. We're in between somewhere. Middle of verse 13, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. You're learning doctrine. You're excited about it. You want to defend the faith and go out and argue with the, you know, the false religionists and et cetera, et cetera. And you have all that theological zeal. Your typical seminary student. So those are the three categories that make. And he repeats that, uh, those categories uh, again. So we all fall into one of those somewhere on the spectrum. Going back to Titus chapter 2, this complements what Paul's getting at here with the older men who have this seasoned relationship with God and as a result this tremendous faith 
and they can they know they can rely on God and they just don't question him. And that's why it's beautiful to have uh, these kind of men around because it stabilizes your faith when you're a younger buck kind of and you lacking the experience. You haven't seen God be faithful as many years as they have. And so when we started GBF uh, among our five, six leadership men, we had a, a seasoned saint among us, Walt Heine, who's now in Mexico. He was he was a stabilizing agent on our leadership because he was like really wasn't Walt like 95 or 100 or something. Anyway, a very wise, older, godly man. And he just never panicked. He never panicked. Another crisis. Walt is not panicking. Oh, God is in control. Let's just pray. Oh, exciting. He's doing something new. How can you get excited about this? Uh, but I appreciated the perspective. Very refreshing. And like I said, very stabilizing. And that should be characteristic of a godly older man who trusts God instinctively. And then Paul says two other things that should be true of the older godly men. Godly older men love God and love people. It says they should be sound in love. They are experts at true biblical love. Us younger folk, we don't necessarily always um, consistently love God and other people the way we should. But a godly older man should be sound in this area, should be consistent in this area. The, the, the godly older man knows that loving God and loving other people fulfills the law of God, like Galatians 6 says. If you had to distill it all down, what is the greatest manifestation or characteristic of true biblical love? If you could just write down one word, don't answer out loud, but what would you write down? The greatest manifestation of characteristic of true, godly, biblical love if not the key word or one of the main keywords that I would put as reflected in the entire teaching of the Bible is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Allah does not forgive. He has no capacity to forgive. This is the distinctive teaching of the Bible and the God of the Bible, the true God. God so loved the world that He gave. God so loved the world that He gave Jesus. God so loved the world that He gave Jesus to accomplish what? Forgiveness for sinners. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent. Repent for what? That they might be forgiven. Or the man who pounded his chest that Jesus pointed to as the profile and the showcase of the ideal believer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he was forgiven by God. I would say that one of the greatest attributes of true biblical love is forgiveness. If you've got bitterness in your heart, towards anybody, towards God Himself, towards another believer, then you are not fulfilling biblical love. Because it starts with forgiveness. Forgiveness. We don't need to forgive God, by the way. But we do need to forgive other people. Sinners. We're all sinners. And godly, older, seasoned men, they have this down. They love God because they're intimate with Him. And they love other people because they have a whole history of life behind them. And, you know, probably one of the things that they know that resonates in their mind in light of their forgiving, ongoing, loving heart is they know that they have lived 50, 60, 70 years of a life of sin and have been forgiven by Jesus Christ as a result. And because they have been forgiven, they also can forgive. That's what it's all about. That is true love. Forgiving. Godly older men, they love God because He's a forgiving, gracious God, among other things. And they love people. 
And you can see it in how they, their countenance, their kindness, their voice, their attitude, their willingness to accept and talk to anybody with no prejudices. That's a loving person. That's a beautiful thing. We need more and more older godly men like that in our midst. And then finally, number six, older godly men are resilient in the face of hardship. Uh, the word there in your Bible is they are sound in perseverance or they are sound in steadfastness, says the ESV. They are sound in endurance, says the NIV. They've been through the gauntlet. They're still going through the gauntlet. They have survived the gauntlet of life. It's trials, whatever Satan or sin threw their way. And they have they just continue to persevere because of their deep relationship with God. And no matter what's going on, whether it's the trial they're in or the trials that they've seen and the hardships they've seen in life, God has proven Himself faithful every single time. And that is their perspective. They know God is going to be faithful. God continues to be faithful. The plan is headed exactly where it needs to be. God is going to fulfill exactly what He said. We are not off course. Nothing takes God by surprise. A great verse that applies to this kind of attitude is Romans 8, 28. And I want to close with that for all of us. Uh, if you don't, I can just read it to you. Romans 8, 28. And here's what enables older godly men to persevere. Because no matter what comes their way in life, whatever hardship it could even be, uh, cancer, disease, death, doesn't matter. They know, if they know God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. God causes all things to, by the way, that's present tense. Do you know that God is continually working all things together for His good? Continually? In this life. It's not just in the next life. It is in this life. It doesn't say all things are good because there's a lot of bad, horrible things. But God is working all things together for His good to accomplish His purpose, which also includes the good of His people. That is the sovereignty of God. And we can rest in that. And older godly men, they rest in the sovereign hand of Almighty God who is totally in control. And at any time in their life, in the face of any crisis... The truly mature, older man of God can say, you know what? The Lord is still on the throne. And I am unshaken. The Lord is still on the throne. Isn't that comforting? Because that's a, a great truth. So in closing with that, in light of these exhortations of these older men, older men, uh, keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. And if you haven't arrived yet, guess what? None of us have. But hopefully it just became more clear in terms of focus of trajectory that you're supposed to be on of being a model among us. And we thank God for you. So there's some of the practical application is older men keep pursuing this goal. Uh, older women, if you're married to one of these older godly men, then thank God for that older man and also be a helpmate to him to continue to help him stay on the course. Finish strong. Finish strong. You know, not everybody finishes this life strong. They don't. And that's a good prayer. God, allow me to finish strong, to finish the course, to complete the race. What about younger people? Okay, younger people. Now you know what you're shooting for in the future, especially if you're a young man. But also younger people and all church members. Here's an exercise I would like you to do. In addition to praying for the persecuted church today, think of in your life an older godly man that you personally know, whether it's a family member uh, someone in your church, a relative, but somebody in your circle of influence that you know personally that is a, truly an older, godly man, that is an exemplary model. And then pray for that man today. 
thank God for him. Ask God to protect him, that he would continue to grow and be an influence to others. And if you are so compelled, write him an encouraging note. Thanking him for the ministry that he has in your life and others around you. Wouldn't that be a wonderful blessing to that older man of God? And I hope a lot of those kinds of notes go out today. Let's go ahead and thank the Lord for our time together in his word. Father, we do thank you for our time of worship, our time in Sunday school, um, to, to be with the saints, to interact, to enjoy one another, to be encouraging to one another, to cultivate and develop godly and Christian relationships, to bear one another's burdens. Just thank you for all these opportunities that being among the saints affords us. Thank you for the privilege to worship you. Thank you for the treasure of your word and scripture that tells us exactly how you want us to live, tells us exactly what you think. God, we thank you for older godly men. No doubt every single one of us has been influenced and blessed by an older godly man. Thank you that you have blessed GBF, our church, with older godly men. And we just pray that you would help all of us to continue to uh, persevere and pursue these attributes that you've laid before us in the power of your Holy Spirit and by your grace, all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.